Hey everyone, welcome to the Debatable Podcast. I'm Greg Sadashne. Uh, today on the program, I've got Peter Gutierrez. He's a uh, critic, a blogger, an educator, a uh, media literacy advocate, uh, just an all-around renaissance man. Uh, I would go down the list of everything, but he does everything, so we'd be here all day. Uh, he is an opinionated person, uh, the type of people that I love, opinionated people, and getting him on a topic that he's passionate about, well, you know, there you go. He's got, he's uh, going to spin the, the content himself. I don't even have to do an interview. I don't even have to ask him a question. So, uh, yeah, I was so happy that he could be on the program. He is a smart, smart man, uh, has a lot to say, and something that we've been uh, talking about on Twitter for a couple months now uh, the idea in the critical blogosphere of the critic versus the reviewer or uh, the critic versus the consumerist reviewer you know the person who's just putting something out uh, to get people to go see a movie you know uh, usually that revolves around a rating numerical alphabetical uh, you know people don't even read the content of uh, of critical reviews anymore now it's just okay should i go see this or not i'm gonna base that on whether it gets a b or higher or you know an 80 percent or higher uh so yeah this is something that's uh, very uh, closely uh to to the heart of uh of everything that peter believes in and uh to get him off on the conversation he is uh he's very passionate about it so i was so happy to to have something that we both agree uh strongly about and have that on the program today. Uh, a few things before we get right into it. Facebook, facebook.com slash debatable podcast. Go over there and like us. Uh, leave us comments, questions, a uh, little feedback. Let me know what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, how I can refine it. Uh, our Tumblr, debatablepodcast.tumblr.com. A uh, great destination for streaming and for uh, download. And I use it like a blog, so I update it about three or four times a week. Uh, go over there, bookmark us. Uh, go to that website, and I am at Mr. Greggles on uh, Twitter. Uh, so please enjoy uh, Peter Gutierrez. Yes. Button if you start to cough. Yes, I will. Okay, and if I don't hear from you, I know that's what we're going to have. <laughs> I'm probably having a coughing fit. Yes. And I'll just keep talking. I'll just you know, <laughs> you know until until you're better or something. Absolutely. How's how's this week been for you? You've been busy this week. Um. Yeah, pretty busy. Pretty busy. I mean, that's actually just kind of a a regular week. I don't know. I don't know what to. I never know how to answer that because I don't know if it's compared to like other people or compared to myself or compared to the week before. But yeah, it was it's uh, it was busy but good, not not crazy yet. That crazy will start in um, really when it gets to uh, October, a few weeks from now. Lots of stuff happens. I have a lot of deadlines, and then right. there's New York Comic Con, and there's uh, and New York Film Festival. So and Halloween in October. So oh yeah. It's always busy for me because there are a lot of things going on that you know that I'm interested in or that I cover in one way or another. So, right, um, you know, September is just kind of gearing up for that. That kind of. Stuff. So for those who might not know, I just wanted to go down a, a list of some some of your credits. You're you're a uh, you're you're a Renaissance man when it comes to uh, to the things that you do. 
Um, I wanted to go down. So, so you uh, you've written for Twitch, uh, Rue Morgue, the Financial Times, Forward Reviews, uh, the School Library Journal, Graphic Novel Reporter. Uh, you've done stuff for the New York Times, Film Forward, Tribeca Film. Um, you're a columnist for uh, Screen Education. You're an author for the Teachers uh, College Press. You're an editor at Metro Film, and you're a spokesman for the National Council of Teachers of English. So you're all over the place. That's pretty good. I mean, it's it, it, it's. I'll grant you, it's a little more over all over the place than than maybe for some other folks or some of my colleagues or peers or whatever you would call them. But it's all in the same general area. I mean, most of it is related to media and pop culture. Right. And it doesn't you know? It's not it's not as if I'm also you know a columnist for Agriculture Monthly or something. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's not it's not that far flung. It's just as a freelancer and you work for a lot of years, it's you end up writing for a lot of different places. Um, and, and so over a while you you have a, a a resume that that you know sounds more impressive than it than it probably actually is. But yeah, I mean a couple of these places are are in Australia, screen education and um, and Metro is a, is an Australian film journal. And then some of these others are, are obviously not based in the U.S. either. So, um, I mean, I guess I'm saying that to point out I'm all over the place geographically, too. Right. But also to point out that there's actually in the U.S. there are not a lot of um, markets that I've found that will, uh, that will pay a writer for doing the sorts of things that I do. I'm very lucky that I, that I can write for School Library Journal and that I blog for them as well, um, and and there I'm able to talk about all types of all types of things, uh, you know, going across media and the media landscape. But right. um, but you know, they're not they're not too many. Of them, so I end up you know writing for for places overseas and and whatnot because I'm not an academic. So if I were an academic, um, it wouldn't matter to me so much. If I were with the university, I could I could. You know, I could publish in journals and right. do that sort of thing, and I'd have I'd have another paying job. But actually, you know, I don't. I'm just I'm I'm just in some ways just a glorified you know media critic or film critic, uh, like a lot of people. So where did uh, let's go back? Where did this all uh, begin? This whole great uh, adventure. Where what got you interested in in pop culture and in uh, horror movies? And uh, comic books when you were growing up, like where where were the origin points for that? Um, gosh. Um, Let's start with horror movies. Like where where exactly did you did you yeah. get into that? What was that? In, where did that interest start? The interest started almost against my will. Uh, <laughs> I think I referred to you. I referred you to that uh, Kinder trauma piece that right. I wrote a couple of years ago. If folks don't know Kinder trauma, you know you should check it out. It's kindertrauma.com and they have trauma sessions. I, I had met those guys a few years earlier and have become friends with them um, and I thought, you know, I'm going to do one of these these sort of, you know, personal memoir type pieces. People often talk about what scared them as kids. That's what these trauma sessions are. And, um, and so I decided to, to write about my background growing up in New York uh, wherein from a really early and actually inappropriately early age, 
um, I was taken to everything from, um, you know, Grindhouse films on 42nd Street to just first run, you know, uh, early early to mid-70s uh, genre fair, you know, Planet of the Apes movies, which were undoubtedly too, again, inappropriate for, you know, a seven-year-old or something <laughs> like that. Um, but also everything, you know, the content would range from that to sort of, I don't know if you would call it art house. Maybe it was, but it would. It was, uh, you know, we go to museums. My dad would take me every Sunday. So if a museum had uh, a certain series or festival or some kind of program that it was putting on, you know, I ended up seeing weird, you know, European horror films mixed in with Vincent Price films on 42nd Street and The Omega Man with Charlton Heston and all of this stuff that right. nowadays has a certain cachet of being sort of this cool era in cinema. Right. You're growing up with it. It just seemed like um, risque, kind of exciting, kind of sleazy, kind of not sure if you should be watching it. Sure. It definitely wasn't the sort of stuff that the other kids, uh, you know, were, were talking about in the schoolyard. Which sure. was more Disney films, The Brady Bunch, and you know, baseball games that they saw on TV. Did you get any weird reactions uh, sharing this uh, information with the, your mother or your teachers or anything like that when adults found out that you were you were seeing movies like this with your dad? No, I don't, I may, I don't think they really knew about it. I mean, <laughs> I think that's a great question, um, but, but it's partly great because it doesn't lead anywhere. <laughs> that, that's the thing. I, I, I mean, I think there were some early conversations, you know, the first... The, when I was going to my first, quote, grown-up, uh, unquote, movie, which I think, again, was sort of this double or triple bill, I want to say, of Planet of the Apes films, because I think what they would do back then is they would bring out on the same bill one or two of the previous ones right. that you could catch up and see them all in one theater with the one that was, with the title that was in its first release. So, I, I you know... Um, I think I got permission from my mom to see my first grown-up movie. Mm-hmm. But again, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think I was like six years old or something, and it was a rated R type film. So, um, you know, it's, it's. I have a feeling that I actually saw other grown-up films before that, but it was not. It was more by accident because we'd go to we we just it wasn't planned. We'd go and see what was playing. And sometimes there would be stuff that was inappropriate, or again, we would go to one of these museum-type places. I only saw my dad on Sundays because uh, my folks were divorced, so that's what the Sundays were. It was a day when he wanted to right. to see stuff. My dad was a bit of a cinephile, and uh, and so you know we ended up seeing what what he wanted to see, and I developed a taste for it that way. Yeah, I had a very similar experience with my uh, with my dad growing up. He was. Uh, he, we, we came from a divorced household also, and his viewing of movies was always um, kind of like, well, you know, this is something that I either uh, grew up with you sh- that you should see, and again, I'm like six, seven, eight years old, so he'd be showing me, you know, things like Psycho or Taxi Driver at eight years old, which is wow. insane, insane to, to, to think about. Wow, yes, but I mean, those are, I mean, he's... he's What's interesting is, you know, he's he's at least showing you, you know, 
you want to call it quality films or, or you know, even <laughs> classic films. Yeah. I don't know that an eight-year-old would uh, <laughs> would appreciate. The, you know, probably more stunned by, by the brain matter that's that's exploding in the taxi driver. Yeah. At, at the climax, more than how Scorsese is is maneuvering the camera beautifully in certain scenes and that sort of thing. The really funny thing about that is that um, I don't know if it was because uh, he realized he had made a mistake and he shouldn't be showing something this violent to a kid or whether he forgot that that after that fade out, after that great shot coming out of the uh, out of the apartment complex, sure. that fade out. I don't know if he realized that there was a coda to that movie because he turned off the tape uh, on that fade out. So for years, I thought that that was the end of the movie. Um, The coda is what makes it so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I remember writing stuff about that in in college because I love Taxi Driver, you know, from from practically, you know, when it came out. Right. And, and saw it so many times, you know, as a teenager growing up in New York, you know, was always in, in, in revival houses in New York. And, you know, what was, what was remarkable about that film is, is, is that coda at the end. Yeah. Because that's what, you know, there's a, I don't know if I'd call it a debate, that, that is probably too strong a word, but it's at least, an, it, there's an interesting discourse around it because, is that, in fact, does that actually exist? Right. In, in the same way metaphysically as the rest of the narrative. Right. Or is it sort of, you know, the, the, whether, whether you want to call it mind screen and his dying moments. Mm-hmm. Right. Or do you want to say that the film has completely imploded into Travis's psychosis? Yep, yep. It's another interpretation. But it belongs to this great period of, of uh, you know, the so-called incoherent film of the, of the 1970s. Yes. Um, and early 80s, Cruising is another film like yes. that. There are a bunch of films where there are things in them that don't quite make sense in terms of matching up with reality. Right. And, you know, I, I love those, even if I didn't know why I loved them at the time. Right. The, the, the thing that was that's weird about your story with, with, with your dad is I can't, like, it seems like your dad had already seen, obviously, something like Psycho before showing it to you, yes. correct? Right. Uh-huh. With my dad, it was more like, he hadn't seen these. Oh, so it was an experience for both of you. Right. So that kind of lets him off the hook. On the other hand, you know, when you're going down to 42nd <laughs> Street to these grind houses, like, and you've done it before, you know what it's pretty much, what's going to lie in store for you. So if you're bringing an 8-year-old or a 9-year-old to these films, and it's a film called Terminal Island, and, you know, you've maybe even seen the trailer a few weeks before, and you're, it's pretty clear that it's going to have some, you know, some some nudity and right. some, you know, grindhouse-style uh, action and violence and all of that. <laughs> even if you've never seen it before, he knew it wasn't going to be, you know, a Hitchcock film for my own edification, Yeah, um, is, is seeing the sort of thing. What was really interesting back then, though, which I didn't explain a few minutes ago, is... Um, Places like, growing up in New York, places like the Beacon Theater, which um, about 10 years later, and, and now to this day, um, decades later, became a, a prominent um, you know, rock concert and pop music venue mm-hmm. on the Upper West Side, was back when I was a kid. I mean, apparently in its heyday, it had been some kind of theatrical you know, venue or movie palace. I don't know its history, right. but when I was a kid, it would, and this was only about 
less than a mile from where I grew up, it would show these amazing like quintuple features where you pay oh, boy. one you know price and you could go in, but they made no sense. They would have <laughs> Bruce Lee movies mixed in with like Little Rascals <laughs> and Wolf and Hardy. You could go in. And I mean, I don't know who's programming it, or if you should even dignify it by calling it programming. But it would, you know, it would say it on the marquee. It would say like, "Lots of laughs, Laurel and Hardy, Little Rascals, Double Bill," followed by Bruce Lee's "Fine Fist," and then like maybe a horror movie after right. that or something like that. And so there was no differentiation between what was a classic, what was like maybe okay for kids, or even you know that kids would enjoy versus like something that would just bring bodies in. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I look back, I'm amazed at that sort of stuff, but I think that that shaped a lot of my sensibility, you know, as an adult. I just didn't know what was shaping it at the time, obviously. Right. Let's change gears a little bit. So uh, the interest in comics, uh, where, did, where did that start with you? Um, that started shortly after all this. I mean, from when I was like, you know, 12 years old. I mean, I, I, I was into comics as a young kid, too. Right. But not not a real fan or anything. I was just I was into them as much as any um, you know kid under the age of ten likes comics. But when I turned twelve and thirteen and fourteen, that's when I became you know super snipe that that classic old character who lives his life through comics. I right. mean, just you know, and and um, that that sort of. That, that fit in with my love of movies and all these other things that were going on pretty much during that period. And, uh, you know, when I went away, when I got older later, you know, in high school and college years, I, I, I went away from the comics for a while. But not completely away, but I wasn't a huge fan anymore. I just right. paid attention to the high points here and there. Right. And then years later, you know, it, it, in my 20s, then I was fortunate enough to actually start working in comics and work in the industry and write comics and all of that. And then that sort of recharged, you know, what, what had been dormant for, you know, 15 years or whatever it was at that point. And I got really back into comics around, around that same time or actually even preceding it. I'd been, I'd been teaching for a few years and there was, there was an overlap period when I first got involved in, in, uh, in education and, when I was just getting my my sort of comics career going, and this is this is I guess in the '90s at this point, but right. working in educational publishing at Simon and Schuster Education, which at that point was Prentice Hall, and uh, and and doing that as my day job. In fact, that was the last day job I've ever had. Right. And I actually had to quit that job because the comics took off and did so well that I could just write comics. Uh, and and stuff related to the comic. Well, where did where did movies and that sort of stuff? So that's how I got back into comics. Where did the the interest in in writing come from? Like, what what spurned you into that? It's uh, it's also something that you that you took upon yourself to to um to go down not just an academic road, but you're you you're you're a spokesman and a teacher for for uh, you know uh, literacy and and language arts, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean. Um, let me see. The question is: Wait, is it more about my writing? So when? Yeah, when did when did writing become uh, prevalent to you? What when did it be become something that you wanted okay, to do I, something I, with? I think I know a way. I think I know a way to answer what seems to be on my end a couple of different 
questions because they do all fit together. I noticed, again, going back to the same period of when I was about 12, 13, um, 14, you know, beginning of high school, I'd say for sure, and then definitely later on into high school, but right around that time, 13, 14, you know, that's typical, I don't know if it's typical actually, you could tell me, but it seemed typical to me, a sort of geek trajectory of moving from comics into reading, you know, science fiction and fantasy, Right. And I was still into film at that point, so that's when I started writing, you know, short stories and doing stuff that that, that a lot of teens still do to this day, you yeah. know, and um, I think to connect that up with the things that you just mentioned now, then when I you know, years and years later, I realized the connection there, how sort of my pop cultural interests and my Spanish background um, as a tween and as a teen, um, and perhaps even going further back, uh, right. you know, into childhood, how that stuff really uh, informed a lot of my developments, uh, not only as a reader, but as a writer, um, and, and, and in fact, that in turn informed a lot of my other academic work and and career stuff later on. Right on. So when I reached a certain age and I got into teaching and then into curriculum development and all these other areas myself later, that sort of that came back to me as why isn't this being used more uh, by this meaning um, pop culture, popular media, fandom, right. all things that that young people are interested in, it not only inspires them to do certain things in their life, but certainly in this day and age, even more so than, than when I was a kid, they're actually demonstrating and practicing these literacies when they're, when they're teens now. Right. They are, there's, there are many more things that they're doing. You know, the average teenager probably has his own podcast like yours. Sure. Really into the film or comics or what have you. Sure. And so, that's that to me. That's how I've sort of combined them um, for the last decade or so. Is looking at, at, at that whole sort of ball of wax and, yeah. and thinking where are we not leveraging those things with with young people, and how come they aren't used more in a in a school setting or a school context? Right. I agree completely. I think it's a great uh, learning tool. I, I I imagine that I had more of an experience with it like uh, maybe senior year of high school going into college. But whenever I had a teacher that was using uh, pop culture or, or uh, current media to to use it as a as a learning tool in some way, especially in, in the writing classes and the acting classes, uh, I always felt more engaged and more motivated. So I agree completely with you. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So that's, that's again, I'm coming back to your question about being all over the place. It's um, for years I, I I actually had like multiple and very different resumes. Yeah. Because when I would try to get work, you know the, the sort of places you go to and you're like you want to get gigs either editing comics or writing them. Yeah. Or doing stuff in pop culture, they weren't the same sort of places that that you'd send your resume to if you're also trying to um, you know write teaching guides sure. or textbooks or get gigs teaching or as an instructor. So I had these two different resumes and then only, you know, I'm not even, I'm not even sure when it was. It must have been 
maybe 2004, something like that, maybe eight years ago, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. Like that's when I finally combined that because before that, was I was more of an oddball. You right. know, it didn't work. Then after that, someone with my background actually became more interesting sure. on some level because I did see these these two slightly different. I don't see them as that different, right. I guess, is what I'm saying. But right. but to to the general public, two slightly different worlds and then I and then I sort of combine them. So in that sense, what I had been doing before that in terms of teaching film to kids and teaching them media and doing these sorts of things, that that I suddenly realized, well, I, I'm part of this whole movement, even though I didn't realize it, that's geared towards media literacy. Right. And 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 then that's when things sort of crystallized for me, and I realized this sort of um, divided background actually had some strengths. So for the last several years, I've been really lucky, and that's why I'm able to do things like write this column for for screen education and some of the things you mentioned at the outset. Right. I wanted to touch on one thing. <clears throat> when did you? Uh, how did you get into uh, writing Sly, the um, the uh, comic book that you were on? What was that in the early nineties? Yeah, early to mid. Yeah. I mean, I, it was mid by the time it started coming out, and it was in it. You know, I did this for several years. I guess it started in. in the early '90s, like I'm, I'm thinking, maybe '93 didn't come out till '94, right? And kept me busy all the way to to pretty much the end of the decade. And then I I spent um, a few years actually working on movie project based on the comic stuff and right. and related comic booky and genre type stuff. But none of these movies got made so i know i'm digressing from your original question <laughs> but that, but i mean that's partly how i then got back into writing non-fiction and doing yeah some other things and, and writing books and so forth because my, my this experience of moving from comics and into movies that never got made yeah was, was great to get paid for doing that stuff but there was a, a level of dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction after a while because no one could ever see my work I mean, the nice thing about the comics is that people did see my work. It was, uh, um, the, the way it started was very accidental, very serendipitous. Um, uh, this fellow who's fairly well known, um, or, or at least has been at different points in his career, Billy Tucci and I were friends. Right. I used to be a storyteller in, in, in New York. I used to perform sort of these, uh, almost like stand-up. Uh, type stories and nice. routines in different New York nightclubs and coffee houses and mm-hmm. so forth. And this was uh, this was uh, again back in back in the '90s, that sort of thing. And and so I invited um, Mr. Tucci to one of these gigs. And afterwards, he said, "Well, I'm trying to get this comic book off the ground. I actually have it, the entire first issue drawn. It's this comic book called She, but I'd like you to." help me script it. I mean, in a sense, it's scripted already because the whole thing is drawn, but I'd like you to write the dialogue. You're more of a wordsmith than I am. That way I can focus on the artwork. Right. I said, sure, I'll try that. And then it took off and ended up being one of the most popular comics in the U.S. for the first, you know, at least for the first couple of years that I was in, in, in business. And that was, that was nice for me. I got to meet a lot of amazing creators and I got to even meet some, once in a while some of these folks who have been my childhood idols you know from back oh yeah you know, I was a kid that I that I was lucky to meet them at a, a, a con when I was 13 and 
get their autograph here I could actually have lunch with them you know when I was you know in my late 20s or whatever it was so right so that's fun and and you know I, I would still consider going back and doing more work in, in comics I have done some stuff here and there over the years you know some you know some spot work here and there that I've enjoyed doing but I've never fully like dumped back into the, into the industry again so what was the <clears throat> was that the the impetus for when you said that you went back to nonfiction writing was that uh, being you know being a critic and and doing reviews after that yeah part of it was that I it's interesting you're making me think about my own sort of thought processes here and trying to reconstruct what they were at the time but 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 this thing about my becoming a critic, um, I had been writing nonfiction coming out of doing a lot of this work in, in, in both um, comics and, and this film work and TV development that I mentioned to you. Right. And, and so the, the nonfiction was a nice change, plus I had some background in this because, I, because I'd been teaching and I've worked in publishing and so forth. The, but where did I actually become a critic is, is a little bit... I don't know if you, you call it interesting or what, I'll let you be the judge of it. It's that, you know, I've been trying to work stuff about film into a lot of the nonfiction that I did anyway. I, I right. try to slip it in here and there. And then, and then for a while, I would just start doing these things. Again, this was years ago, but, but for some reason it feels recent. I would, I would once a year send um, these big email email documents to my circle of friends and acquaintances that would be sort of like my favorite films of the year, stuff right. that I'd seen on Netflix or whatever. And after doing this for a few years, because I'd write these little capsule things, and, and of course I was doing this here and there as anyone does, like to start out, I think I did for like certain newsletters and whatever. But one of my friends, after getting this, you know, very, you know, lengthy thing that I'd evidently put a lot of time into, and I don't know what I was thinking. I think I just was doing it out of yeah. a fun sense of banishness. Yeah. You know, getting this long thing about my reviews of different films I'd seen on Criterion Discs, and I don't know if this was 2003 or four or somewhere in there. He said, Peter, why didn't you actually, I mean, you're a professional writer. Why didn't you actually try to, you know, maybe, he put it like this, why don't you try to make some coin yeah. for doing this? Like, why don't you, Try to become a critic. You've already, you already know all this stuff. All these movies. You're writing about it anyway in these long word docs that you email to everyone. Yeah. So then I slowly started doing that. So I've been doing it for I don't know what it is, like seven years now or something like that. And um, and so that's how I got into it is just slowly doing it and like anyone, you know, building a, some clips and some a small body of work, and then you go and you hopefully con, I, I mean persuade the next editor to, to give you some work and, um, and and then you just build from that and go from there. Right. We've been talking about it a little bit on Twitter <clears throat> back and forth um, about this this uh, this opinion that you have that I, I, I share the opinion of, of the major differences between being a, a critic and a blogger, that they are, they are not the same thing, uh, especially in the online universe. Can you speak a little bit about that? Can I clarify? Because I'm not saying the distinction you just made now is not valuable or is, is incorrect, but the distinction that I usually try to make um, is between um, a critic and a reviewer. 
Okay. Not necessarily a blogger because some of the bloggers out there are actually, you know, the most impressive critic that I know. Right. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's and and that's not to draw a hard and fast, a super hard and fast distinction. Obviously, the argument could be made, and I wouldn't disagree with it that that reviewers. Well, that's that's a subset of of being a critic. Yeah. It's a subcategory, and so I can't really disagree with that either. I mean, what. The, this sort of stance that I have curmudgeonly adopted over the last year or two, though, is, or maybe it's longer than that, really speaks to the way that the two are actually conflated. In other words, I'm making this perhaps exaggerated uh, plane to tease the two apart, the critic right. on, on one hand and the reviewer on the other hand, that doesn't actually map to anything either real or anything theoretical. Sure. I'm doing it simply as, a, as an exercise to counterbalance what I am characterizing as a as an unhelpful cultural conflation right. of the two terms so that there seems to be an equal sign between them, not only in the minds of the public, which has been true for quite a long time, I don't know if, if it's, you know, it predates Siskel and, and Ebert, but yeah. it probably does, Right. Um, and, but certainly holds sway in, in today's world, and unfortunately, what, I'm, what, I was, what I've been trying to bring about, or the unfortunate, I shouldn't say unfortunately I've been trying to do it, some might say that, but the unfortunate circumstance that I've been trying to, trying to address is that, to some degree, Critics and the critical community, when it comes to film, and particularly the online film world, yeah. has has sort of um, it, itself introjected, to use a Freudian term, if I can, <laughs> this concept themselves. In other words, taking this idea so that now critics themselves believe, to some, they don't really believe it, but we experience our professions and, the, and films this way. So that in such a way that we have this filter on where reviewers equal critics. Yeah. And then even within that, reviewers mean that you are not reviewing something evaluatively for, for posterity right. or for some enduring sense of readership, uh, your readership, right. but really for this week's current releases where you're giving consumer advice. Right. So it's an interesting uh, uh, definition here uh, also because you're, you're not completely cutting out the reader or the or like you say the consumer here because um, you know there's a there's a stance of what you're writing should they have seen read or heard the product before reading your article versus should they read your article and then make their decision based on that sure yes i mean there there's how can i say this Again, what I am, what I am, somewhat, you know, in a disorganized way, arguing uh, against is is more of a a mindset rather than, in other words, it's not to argue that there's no place for reviews or even for this quote consumer advisory unquote function yeah. of reviews. To me, it's that top line conflation where there's no distinction made where the where 
uh, again, this week's, um, you know, current releases, then, and, and the sort of quick take on see it, don't see it, right. actually becomes what's, what, in the minds of critics themselves, becomes what they think their main value is to their readership. So right. I, I don't want to come across as, um, I mean, it's almost heartbreaking to me, but I realize this, I'm coming at it from my own experience of right. having done 17 billion reviews over the years and sometimes wondering what the point of it is. And then I'm noticing a lot of brilliant and very engaging writers and people who have, you know, just just really nice writing styles and of insight and have great background knowledge of films. And yet, what I continually see on their either on their blogs or on their Twitter screen telling me about their blogs is just one quote review after another. Yeah. Here, here's my review of Dread. It's up now. Quick, right. Here's my review of whatever. It's up now. And I almost want to say. Is that working for you? Like, in other words, does it does it advance any? Does it advance things for you professionally, for the field of criticism, or for your readership? For them, for for every critic out there, and I'm putting every in quotes, but I really mean virtually every critic out right. there. Always just to have the go-to format for their for their output of writing to be. This evaluative piece of 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 text that that's almost completely geared towards either a movie opening or a home video release. Right. Because what happens? We just all become part of this big machine, commenting and then moving on, and then commenting, saying see it, don't see it, arguing a little bit, and then moving on. And there's certain excitement and fun stuff happens in the course of that. But I guess I'm getting old and cranky, (laughs) and I like to see. A lot of people, including myself, by the way, elevate their game somewhat. You know? I, so that, but this is partly a response to. I think the 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 fleetingness of it, and and your criticism is very valid. When we talk about uh, sites like you, you even you even pinpointed the site in your in your recent article, uh, Rotten Tomatoes about compiling a compendium, you know, of of exactly. little blurbs. That uh, critics are putting up, and and then making like a, a a total percentage point on how good this this product, well, this movie is. You should go see it or not based on this percentage. Right, right. I mean, to me, you know, and and there's there's a lot of even critics who contribute to Rotten Tomatoes who, you know, I'm not trying to mischaracterize them because a lot of them will tell you they're concerned that yes, it. it Having a presence on Rotten Tomatoes and being one of their critic, being one of their critics, does send traffic back to their own sites, their own newspapers, and so forth, and their own, their own whatever, their right. own, their own outlets. But at the same time, they also get concerned that well, no one is, you know, necessarily has to read my yeah. or, or you know, because they can see where I fit into this. Right. They already have my score sort of, you know, with this algorithm functioned into everything right. up here. And so, again, I think that there, there still is even a place in there for, for this. It's, it's that what I'm saying is, like, let's just be mindful of the overall direction that, that sort of the culture is going, that movie culture specifically is going, and that, that critics don't become just, you know, so, that, that we're not talking about commodities, and therefore we become 
in a sense, just one more part of this of this overall machinery that's geared towards the commodification of art. Right. We do enough of that when we fixate on on awards and our ten best of the year. Yes. Yeah. And all that. We're already we already do a lot of that stuff. And now and and also our, our fixation on box office figures. Yeah. So some of this, I just want critics to be mindful of the fact that and and this is cineasts and cinephiles in general that that we've already over the last five to ten years adopted more and more of the mindset of what you might call industry insiders, consultants, slash publicists, because because part of it is that stuff is cool, it's cool to know about. Right. Box, this stuff interests me too. Being predicting awards is kind of fun and all that, and certainly readers like that. Sure. But at the same time, criticism and film journalism in general has become a kind of stepchild to those sorts of things rather than talking about film as art, if I can be yeah. Too, you know, rarefied and and snooty about that. Sure, sure. Well, recently, since, since this leads so well into it, recently you've you've uh, released an article that also uh, Matt Singer from IndieWire has added to a, a critic's bill of rights and responsibilities. Yes. Um, can you can you talk about your four your four major points in that article? Um. Gosh, well, I'd rather send people to. Read it and to take it out. I'll, I'll sum it up in general. That you sure. know, um, they can find it on, on my blog at School Library Journal, which is which is called Connect the Pop. Okay. So um, if you just go to slj.com, you'll see Connect the Pop, and then once you're in there, you can you can you can look it up. It's just from like last, beginning of last week right. or whatever it was two I'll, weeks ago. I'll link it on the show notes also. Yeah, and you can also find anything I've tagged on criticism or um, critical thinking, but criticism especially. I got a lot of things over there over the last six months about uh, writing criticism, reading criticism, if, if this is at all interesting to quote. But basically, I was trying to give, again, in this, in this context of, of, um, of secondary education mostly, of grade 6 through 12 in, in the U.S., um, but possibly younger as well, really, and, that, and, obviously, and Matt Singer took that a step you know, several steps farther, right. and, and and applied it to critics in general, which 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 is fine with me. I mean, that's where I, that's where I was coming from, and from my background as a critic. Right. But I was really just trying to say, let's teach kids that that they don't that there's they don't have to pledge allegiance to the supremacy of their own opinion, right? As being something which is somehow uh, stands above all else, and and the second they commit it to uh, to paper or to a blog or what have you, it's then written in stone. Uh, because although forming their own opinions and supporting their own opinions is 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 a crucial part of of developing as a, as a thinker, yeah. as a writer, as a, as a media quote consumer, as an adult, I think. That, at the same time, it gets limiting after a while. So the yeah. bill of rights goes to the idea of like, hey, is it okay if I can write? Piece like think of the classic school, you know, book report, or 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 sometimes kids are asked to write book reviews, or they even could do film reviews, especially if it's based on a work of literature, or what have you. Yeah, to sort of give teachers permission to both assign and for students to to respond to assignments in such a way that they don't necessarily have to be telling others 
I liked it, and here's why, and so therefore you should like it as well. Right. Which is part of the, this consumer advisory um, mentality. In other words, this, you have this classic T chart in your mind, like all the pros on one side, some cons on the other side, and basically your job as a quote reviewer or critic is to just tell people, well, the cons outweigh the pros, or the pros outweigh the cons, therefore this either gets a, a, a green light, a red light, or in the, in the famous, you know, Roger Ebert um, <laughs> formulation, a thumbs up or a thumbs sure. down, or any of these other binaries. See it, don't see it, yeah. I liked it, I didn't like it. Or to come back to Rotten Tomatoes, which, which and Metacritic and these sorts of things, all it's doing is taking those that, that overall um, approach to criticism and laying it out on a more nuanced grid where the scores are all, Rotten Tomatoes, the scores are all the way up to 100, but right. it's similarly reductive in that, why, and this comes back to the Bill of Rights, forgive me, I'm, I'm working back to that, <laughs> but the idea, can't I please just write something that, yes, does talk about um, whatever movie it is out there, whether it's Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie, yeah. or The Possession, or Dark Knight, or something like that, and not just be someone else commenting on whether it's good, bad, or in the middle, or indifferent, but actually write a piece of criticism that discusses it within some other context, so that kids could write about the Dark Knight and not write a movie review of it, but actually perhaps compare it to other superhero films or compare it to uh, dark depictions of Batman in comic books. Right. So just something very basic. There's something that starts the article that uh, I, I find very interesting now that we've been talking about critics and reviewers. And, and it seems like a lot of people uh, won't, won't have a problem with a review of a movie. But as soon as you bring up the word criticism or a critique or he is a critic, that there is a negative connotation to it, that you are destroying something or you're picking it apart. And you said this thing, you know, at the beginning of your article about how people don't like critics too much. Um, yes, I, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's part of trying to, this effort of mine, uh, this effort of mine to, to sort of rehabilitate the idea of criticism, not, not so much where criticism is still being practiced at a high level and appreciated and, and very vibrant and so forth. It's just that my perception of that is that that's in a smaller and smaller right. pocket of right. our culture um, as time goes on. And others have responded to the same thing in slightly different ways. Armand White, a couple sure. of years ago, responded to it in terms of like, oh, you know, what's the deal with all these unquote unprofessional critics who have not been, one of the words he would use is trained. They've not been right. trained in criticism or whatever it is. And to me, you know, at the time I thought a lot of what he was saying was BS um, because I saw it as, as a sort of print-based old guard responding yeah. to a, a threat from right. news sources of criticism. Right. These days, I somewhat see the value in what he's saying but slightly but cast slightly differently because I simply would not characterize a lot of the things he's doing as criticism. On the other hand, I would not characterize a lot of that old guard with their, you know, weekly or every Friday newspaper reviews 
um, saying, go see this movie, don't. I give it three stars, two and a half, one and a half, or whatever. Right. To me, a lot of that barely qualifies as criticism as well. So, you know, these days I'm trying to sort of get get the idea of criticism to, to cast off its negative connotations and have people think about, you know, if you're a writer or you're, you might be part of a critique group where you meet with with friends who and fellow writers who are in a given... I mean, sometimes it's online. You're part of a critique group, which is like a, a, a writing workshop, and you all you pass around each other's work, you critique it. Now, no one thinks, you know, I'm going to... Like, why would you join that if your stuff was going to be ripped to shreds and it was never going to help you right. as a creator. Now, I'm not saying the job of a critic is to help creators, but best critics, creators love them because they see right. that not only is their work appreciated, but sometimes they they some light is shown on the creator's own work right. that they haven't seen. Right. So I've become close friends with a lot of you know uh, filmmakers and, and writers over the years because sometimes they're like, well, you get what I'm trying to right. do here. And so that that I want to see a little bit more of that as as a flavor of, of criticism in the public's mind, um, because instead it just comes across as people carping about you know their opinions. And these days it's like, well, more than ever, well, why does your opinion matter more than more than mine? And I think one of the ways people can show why their opinion matters if they actually write things or broadcast things that aren't based on their opinions at all. Right. In other words. Show show your insight into the medium, and therefore I'll actually value your opinions more when it comes time for you. Just you know, when you're clearly just being evaluative about something, give me more than that. And so that's what I was trying to express in that blog post, somewhere buried in there, the one you're referencing. Yeah, um, is the idea of a job of a real critic. Yes, they can be telling you whether they like the film or they love Hitchcock or they don't like Vertigo and it shouldn't have been the number one movie of all time or what have you or some variation on that but at the same time when you're reading that critic or listening to that critic ideally you're not just learning something about vertigo which you may have seen yeah. a million times already you're actually learning something about film itself yes. Yes. so a good critic that's how you know you're in the presence of you might not even say I won't even say a good critic but a critic period you come away with it and you learn something about movies with a capital M not just, you know, with a small M, the latest zombie movie yeah. or what have you, which again is fine. But it, I, I'd love it if, if you know, because that's the stuff that gets me going, is when I, I get these insights from reading other folks. Unfortunately, I wish I had more time and I wish the market paid people to write things like that more so there was more of that out there rather than just, you know, these, these constant, you know, quick takes on movies and whether you should see them or not see them. So there's really no point in asking you for uh, a eight, eight word review quick picks at the end of this, huh? <laughs> a quick picks would it be uh, like current releases? Or... <laughs> yeah. I meant I meant simply as you know you you're you're going on about the in the importance of the review and not doing little blurbs. <laughs> here's here's my thing. Let me pull back here a little bit. <clears throat> yeah, because obviously I still, I mean I've I've stopped doing. I shouldn't say stop, but I've pulled back a lot on doing reviews for the last few months, partly because of everything we're saying, and partly, I mean, a lot of this is personal, I have to express, yeah. but part of it is I got disgusted sort of with my own my own opinions after a while. Oh, really? I, I know as weird as that sounds, but got tired of like listening 
to myself, tell people to, you know, whether I liked or didn't like something. Part of it is like I, I wanted to write other things. I got sick of my own opinion, so I backed away from that. But with that said, I'm not above, and, and I will do a, a you know, with a, a top ten list at the end of this year. One of the, you know, the local newspaper that I write that also has a, an online component here in New Jersey. Right. I mean, pay me to write this this list every year. And so I'll do that, and I might do it as part of some of these other sites that I'm part of. But here's the key thing, Greg. When I do these lists, yeah. maybe this will help. And so maybe I can do some quick picks, although nothing <laughs> is bringing to mind right now. That, so maybe I shouldn't do them. But when I do these sort of picks or whatever, the distinction that I make is I don't use the word best. Yes. I, or top. Or right. I use the word like my favorite. Yes, right. I'll say, you know, these, these are my favorite films of the year because to me, that this comes back to this idea of, of, the, of the critics quasi-arrogant because a lot of these, these critics, when you, when you probe a little bit deeper, and I used to do this when I was younger and I was just starting out, like, I mean, part of it was I was a little bit naive. It was naivete mixed with outsider arrogance, I, I guess, at the same time. Sure. Because I, I would send emails to some of these folks and I'd say, hey, I've seen your, like, best year films of the year, um, does this include, like you said, it's called best films of the yeah. year. Like, yeah. are you including, you know, um, foreign films? And they'd be like, no. Are you including films that just, like, didn't have a theatrical run because they didn't get a distributor? Right. Or, like, great at film festivals and went right on to either home video or on demand or whatever. Or like you said, even they movies that don't appeal to, the, the, to, to you, that appeal to different audiences. Right, but but in other words, they they exact they are not they are putting this this filter on or this premise on. Yeah. of these are the best, so they're yeah. pointing themselves. But when you dig a little deeper, they actually who can say it's the best? Have you actually seen? Yeah. Every, even of all the Hollywood and indie yeah. mainstream releases, very few people have seen all of those. And some of them you see in theaters, and some of them. You know, I catch up on them because I get some screeners at the end of the year, so I can vote on them right. as part of the Online Film Critics Society. But are those experiences analogous? And exactly. But to me, this whole thing, there's so many things involved that there's a lot of presumption involved in saying, well, these are the best and I'm going to defend them. And if you, just, you could take that off, you could, you could reduce that level of, of presumption a lot if you just said, hey, these are my favorites. These right. are the ones I really like because favorites also can change over yes. the time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, well, this is no longer so much my favorite, but when you come out with these lists and you give awards and you do all that, that's it. You move on. No one ever knows later on, you know, after you put this film and then you read this in your top ten and then you saw something else from the same year and mentally yeah. you replaced it. Where does that show up online? Yeah. It doesn't show up anywhere. It's just, it's it's already reified as Oh, this was one of the best, and some other things weren't. Right. To me, it's a little bogus. I you're speaking exactly to me. I wrote a uh, an article, uh, well, a blog post, not too too long ago when that uh, when the sight and sound poll came out, and really that was the crux of my my feeling too. That you know the word best or greatest being applied to something that really is subjective and opinionated and it's a it's like water it flows and changes so you know i i put up this top 10 list of my own and i called it my favorite movies of this moment because i'm sure you know the next day or the next hour it's going to change somewhat 
there you go. That's, you know, that's, that's been my, more of my approach. You know, I, I, I don't know if it's playing safe or being too precious or whatever, but, and, you know, to, to just counter that for a second to play, de- not devil's advocate, but to show an exception to that, that's why I put a lot more stock in things like um, film festival awards, because yep. in festival awards, you're dealing with a discrete and well-defined group of films. You know, you, it, it's not every film in the year or every film ever made in Japan or every whatever yeah. these best of lists are. Every you know action movie ever made or every you know whatever all of these sort of you know top ten lists and top one hundred lists and all of this stuff. You know, it's like, well, what would ha- what films did they screen? Okay, who was on the jury? Right. What was that? You know, what it's or who? You know, here's what the audience voted for. Here's a, and and then those same films go and compete in other festivals, and they're mixed in with some others. And to me, if you want to have a competitive aspect to to, to things, you know, I'm, I'm not against that. I'm not trying right. to be a, a a you know just just a stick in the mud here but the idea is when 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 you appoint yourself sort of this arbiter of yes. uh, uh, sort of cultural status on this much grander scale uh, you know and 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 and, and you're, in some sense you're you're enshrining your opinions that way that's that's what's tricky and can I say one more sure. thing on this or do you have another no no please go the just to come back to Rotten Tomatoes, and to, it ties into some of this stuff about these these top ten lists and all of these things, even sight and sound. Um, you know, what I'd love to see, I, I'm not even against the sort of aggregate scores, but I'd love to see all of the, all of the technology that is currently available in terms of, in terms of um, different algorithms that could be a to films and the critics making those decisions on Rotten Tomatoes and, and and elsewhere. I mean, you could say this about IMDb scores or what have you. I'd love to see the sort of thing that you you see maybe with, with the nuance of, of say, 538, the um, the presidential and, and general election mm-hmm. blog run out, out of the New York Times by Nate Silver, right. where you're not just looking at the raw numbers, but you're evaluating where those numbers come from critically. In other words, right. that be true Metacritic, right. not be just like aggregating the scores, but when you see, for instance, uh, a, a new horror movie coming out, and there are going to be a bunch for October, and you see it has a score of like, you know, 52 on Rotten Tomatoes, I'd love to see that broken down more by, and, sure, it can give me that top, top level number, top line number, yeah. but I'd love to see how many of those critics have seen more than, let's pick a, a number, more than 25 horror movies in the past year? More right. than 50 horror movies in the past year? How many, what's their average score for horror movies for that genre? In other words, if they never give horror movies over a 60, or, or what, you right. know, which I think is the passing grade, or is it 70? I can't remember. Yeah, 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 it's something like a 70 or something. You've only given one horror movie that ever. Wouldn't you want to know those sort of behind-the-scenes yeah. because otherwise, what's the value of it? Exactly. You're not really being, 
you're not really deconstructing the criticism itself. So you should be able to turn off and on these different filters. Right. So you can see, well, who's like-minded to me? Right. Who understands the genre? Right. Who doesn't like the genre? And 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 that would be wonderful because you could just have a, a, a greater appreciation right. for, for what's a real take on some of these films. Exactly. And probably create some other interesting results as well. A deeper analysis, right on. Exactly. Uh, just just wrapping up here. So I I, uh, I read the article that you did about um, about the Avengers earlier this year, where you took your your son to see it uh, for the for the second time. You had already seen it, right? Is is your is your experience with your son uh, similar at all as as with your dad? Are you showing him things <laughs> that that, uh, that you enjoy that maybe he's not he's not the age for? Or are you just a that's a great question. I mean, when he was a baby, like the first movie we took him to was like Final Destination. <laughs> but he was a baby. So right. He slept through it in his little, you know, car carrier down on the floor of the movie theater. So he could go out his parents and see a movie without having a babysitter. But generally, yeah, I try to, I'd keep his not get exposed to that stuff. I try to, you know, Doctor Who stuff is kind of creepy. So oh, yeah. That is a as it gets, you know, in, in terms of some of these things. Last night he made some comments about wanting to see Kill Bill, and I, <laughs> and I was like, I tried not to show my alarm too much. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, part of it comes back to, to my background in, me, in media literacy. I think that, um, you know, I don't know how much my dad did of this. I think he did some. I have some memories. But part of it is, you know, I'd rather watch some of those things with him yeah. Whether it's Kill Bill or or Night of the Living Dead or something like this or even the ones you mentioned, Psycho, yeah, and this sort of thing, you know, because I've shown him Hitchcock films, right? What I'd like to do, but the milder ones, you know, North by Northwest yeah. and what have you. But what I'd like to do is, you know, I you're not going to do this across the board, but I'd like to be there, co-viewing. It's called right, yeah. co-viewing some of these things with him. Because then, then there can be a dialogue, you know, whether yeah. it's how the movie is going, hitting the pause button afterwards, or if he gets, if it's too much for him, we could stop watching it. He's not going to do that with a friend. He's just right. going to watch it all the way through. So part of it is like, yeah, I like it. This not so much the degree my dad did necessarily, but I think there's an importance to showing kids, you know, some of this content. Even a little bit before you think they might be ready for it, yeah. because then you can help them sort of with that transition. Yeah. Because like with anything, they're going to go and do it by themselves. You're going to give a kid their first little sip of wine, or do you want them doing it exactly. behind the schoolyard when they're you know drinking beers when they're 17 exactly. and sneaking away from you and doing it? Because they'll do it anyway, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're you're getting them. Uh, you're doing that thing of of uh, of dipping their toes into the uh, water without throwing them in and and telling them to <laughs> to swim for dear life. You know. Right. Right on. Hey, uh, Peter, thank you so much for the hour you've given me. Well, thank you. I mean, I know I, I blabbed away. I didn't give you any quick picks. <laughs> no, no. It was, a, it was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's bad because I'm even thinking, what if I, you know, it just makes me seem like more of a, this guy who doesn't even, uh, you know, doesn't even like movies or doesn't like saying he likes No, nah, you... I do. There have been a lot this right. year, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, um... It's really across the board. I was starting to draw up my list of, like, you know, my favorite ones this year, and we'll see how 
flies with the newspaper because I'm realizing so many of them are just like, you know, weird, you know, foreign yeah. thrillers and stuff like that. And very few of them are mainstream films, but we'll see. I'm optimistic. I, I'll go into the fall and I'll be excited about movies despite all of my, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> well, you're and gloom, your, you know? your, your career certainly speaks for itself. So, you know, when you talk about uh, your your heartfelt, hard-won opinions about things, people can't ignore that. That's something that, that comes with uh, with the ups and downs of, of just uh, life as a critic, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate this. Cool. Have a very good day, sir. Talk, great talk with uh, with Peter. I was uh, I was happy that he could come on here and and uh, and and have a a voice. Uh, you know, be able to to talk with him and get, you know go past the biographical interview into something that was a conversation, a deeply felt, passionate conversation about something that that uh, is is strong is strongly uh, felt. You know, by someone who's who's been experienced, who's gone through the 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 years of of seeing how the uh how the atmosphere has changed especially in the internet as far as the the web blogosphere goes uh he's uh he's a perspective that's uh that's unmatched by by many so his opinion is uh, is fascinating and uh he he inspires me uh just just listening to him that was a a great conversation Next week we got Joe Bailey Jr. and Steve Mims. If uh, those aren't names that you know, you will. Uh, they're filmmakers. They made a movie called Incendiary: The Willingham Case, uh, one of my favorite movies of 2011, and one of my favorite documentaries. Uh, if you like uh, movies about the justice system and uh, uh, death penalty, uh, it is it is up there with uh, The Thin Blue Line and uh, Paradise Lost. Uh, it is a heartbreaking movie, and uh, it's interesting to see it it inter- intertwine with uh, the political system there in Texas. It's a whopper of a film, uh, so go over there to IMDb, Wikipedia, YouTube. Go over there and see the uh, the trailer, and get ready for next week as we uh, as we conclude our high profile September podcasts. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I've got butterflies in my stomach. I'm such a such a fan of the movie, and I'm so happy to finally get to talk to them. So tune in for that. Uh, yeah, have a good day. I love you guys. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by MusicAlley.com. Uh, go on over there, check them out. I have the uh, the bands and their songs on the show notes, along with links to their band pages on Music Alley. Uh, go check them out. If you uh, like the music, uh, download them. Support those artists. <laughs>